Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. As the Vietnam War rages overseas, four friends make a vow. For the next two weeks, they'll live for each other and for each day. Welcome to New Books and Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm J.P. Gottlieb, the host of this channel. I'll be talking to Sharon Solwitz, author of a prize-winning collection of short stories and a dark novel called Bloody Mary. Today, we'll be discussing her new novel, Once in Lourdes, which tells the story of teenagers in a fictional town in Michigan who make a suicide pact. In the two-week span in which the novel takes place during the summer before their senior year of high school, the lives of Kay, CJ, Saint, and Vera will change beyond their expectations, and what they gain and lose will determine the novel's outcome. Hi, Sharon. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Galit. I'm glad to be here. So let's start with a few words about you. Can you tell us where you were born and raised, where you went to school, a little bit about your previous books? Sure. Um, I was born in Pittsburgh, spent six months there. I have no memory of that period, but I grew up in Cleveland, lived there for about 18 years, went to school at Cornell. Um, I was, in fact, when it was time for me to go to college, I was allowed a 350-mile radius of Cleveland, and I went as far mm. east as I could, um, which was Cornell, and then uh, met and married a guy who I eventually divorced, but he was from Chicago, and that's how, how come I, I live here right now. Um, lots of stuff happened in between. Um, we were serious hippies. I lived on a commune. Um, we went to India in search of enlightenment. We rode horses across. We, we went across from uh, from Zurich to um, Bombay, basically overland with uh, hitchhiking and uh, walking and um, taking a bus or a train or two. We, um, uh, but then things weren't working out. Went back to Chicago. I went. I was sort of in desperate straits then, went to school. I'm one of the later people to get um, a PhD and also late to have a book and late to have a real job. I mean, here I am um, 
you know, what we call a certain age. And um, I'm sort of grateful that I had a wild and crazy youth and things worked out decently. Um, books, books. I published my first book, um, I think I was in my early 50s, maybe 51, and had just graduated. Uh, it was Blood and Milk, and it was a, a collection of short stories that I'd been working on for the last 10 years. Um, that book did fairly well. Um, I published it with Saraband, and they also t it took my next book, which is a novel. And um, my third book is Once in Lords. And since then, I have a I've had another book that was taken, but in an odd way. It won a con it just won a contest probably about a month ago, um, called the Christopher Doheny Contest, um, and it will be published in um, in Audible or audio, I guess, uh, as an audio book, maybe by Audible.com. I'm not sure, but it's and it's a book that's looking for a press. What an interesting story, and I'm looking forward to the next book. Because I love Consumer. And I'd like to ask you, first of all, about that. It, on the jacket, it's described as a gripping, haunting novel about the power of teenage bonds. Do you think that's what Once in Lords is about? Well, it's funny to, to think about your book after you've written it, because then I can talk about it, you know, like a you know, like a um book reviewer or a reader. Um when I was writing it. I wasn't. I didn't know what it was about. All I, I started out with uh, a single image, um, which I mean, which I just wanted to flesh out and see what would happen. I mean, it was an image of four kids, high school age, and they were um, they just made a, a suicide pact. Didn't know why. Um, they were standing on the. They're, they're standing on a cliff, um, holding hands. And the plan is to jump together. And it was, so there was something I think to do with friendship um, in that image, because the idea that they would commit suicide, it wasn't so much things are desperate, but, or maybe it wasn't only that things are desperate, but we love each other and we're going to do this act together. And then as I wrote the book, it became, I think, like primarily really about their love for each other and how it changed with, with the, with the pact that they make, how it changed with the events that occurred. Um, you know, I think in fiction things happen, you know, sometimes because of character, you know, you do something that just is something that you would, your, the character would, would do because of how proud they are or, fierce they are or angry they are. They do something out of, you know, their their nature. But sometimes things are accidental. And so that combination of, of accident and, you know, sort of this illusion of purpose runs runs novels. Or at least this is something that I think about now and that I teach students. Um, so anyway, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. W were any of those characters based on your students? I know you've been teaching at Purdue. These The characters were not based on anyone that I knew, uh, which is, and I got to say, this is the first time I've ever written um, 
a piece where I didn't know the characters right off. And when I first started writing, I would write to solve some murky problem that I, something that I didn't understand I would be trying to figure out in, in course of, of the writing. Um, so one of the first, the first story I ever published was about a, uh, a girl who's 28 and she's going back to her 10 year high school reunion. And she's disappointed in herself because back in high school, she was a star and she's no longer a star. And she's going back with that sort of burden of her past on her. And this is something that I had gone through and felt, you know, we had very strange feelings about, couldn't, couldn't figure out what to do. Um, I mean, there was really nothing to do. It couldn't figure out what it meant, um, my going back there. So that, I mean, that was what I used to write. Now, these characters, uh, I mean, they began with this, with the one character of Vera. She's one of the, one of the four high school kids. And I had the image of her before I had anybody else. It just sort of came into focus that she had a damaged hand. And everyone else was, you know, had, was physically perfect, but this one with the damaged hand was was key. And starting with her, I developed the other characters in relation to her. I developed her in relation to her hand. And there's a process that I, I use that is kind of like a playing with opposites, um, looking for images that either express or express the opposite of what I'm you know, of what I want to convey about a character. And I play with that. I use, I use that technique. Actually, it's a technique to, um, to get uh, my characters. So Kay is the narrator and she's um, struggling with her weight and the early, her mother's early death. So who's her opposite? And how did you figure out those? Who are the two opposites? I first was Vera. And because oh, Vera okay. was um, had the damaged hand, I wanted her to also have some positive traits. You know, I know this sounds really mechanical, but it's like, okay, which positive trait will I grace her with? And I gave her, a, you know, like a, a beautiful controlled body, skill in ballet. She was a ballerina and and a mouth. I mean, it seems to me that somebody who's got a damaged hand would have had to work hard to develop um, something that she could face the world, you know, to protect herself on account of. And then when I had, you know, so there is this sort of beautiful, mouthy, um, you know, troubled, very, uh, you know, very attractive person. And I thought, Kay's got to be the opposite. So let's Uh. give her a weight problem. And so that was the first trait that I thought when I was developing Kay, you know, and after I, I could, you know, so I would work with these characters, like think about them until I could see them. And then I could see their families. And I, I had to, I mean, I you know, sort of, I had to make myself into a kind of, I don't know, amateur psychologist thinking, okay, given this, what kind of family would they have? Must they have? And then, what else can I add to that that interests me just for the for the hay of this? Um, so I didn't have to make um, CJ Jewish, 
that I ended up doing that because I know something about Judaism and also I know a little bit about the Holocaust and I know someone who's a Holocaust survivor uh, or the, the not, well, he's the son of that. And I thought, okay, let's, and I put that together as kind of his background and he, with his voice, which I didn't know at first, it, it grew out of that, you know, those facts. And all of all four of the kids have such terrible relationships with their parents, especially today with his father. Why are the parents also that? Well, first of all, I don't know whether it's no, this is probably not true. <laughs> but, I, but I'll tell you what I was about to say anyway, that it, it has something to do with the fact that they would consider suicide, but that's not true. It's the fact that they would consider suicide and not talk to their parents about it. Um, you know, almost requires um, dysfunction. But there's also, I don't know, there's a book that I teach from by Janet Burroway called Writing Fiction. And one of, one of her edicts is, only trouble is interesting. And when I think about people in their relationships with their parents, the ones who get along really well with their parents, um, that, that takes, you know, I, you can... There, there are no good images of that, or, or the images of that tend to be really similar to one another. Um, mm-hmm. But dysfunction, boy, is is way more interesting to me. You know, plus when I think of my parents, um, you know, we, we weren't all that dysfunctional. But what fascinates me, what I write about, are the problem spots. You know, the times, the times of great pain, I and mean, that's what I remember. Or the times of relief from pain when something good happens to reconnect. Hmm. Why do why do all four? Oh, okay. What about the complicated? All four of them have complicated sibling relationships. Can you discuss anything about that without giving away surprises? Well, you know, I think of Vera and her and her brother as being very close. And them, you know, having truly, you know, a very loving sibling relationship. Things happen, but that they they were kind of a mainstay, the two of them against the difficult mother and difficult father, who are difficult in different ways. Um, yeah. Kay, Kay's, I mean, Kay's background was really personal because I had an an aunt who was very close to the family who killed herself and she was also anorexic and that um I that happened when I was 16 and it was one of the you know kind of major traumas of our family's experience together so that was something. I mean, that was that was one of the the only really personal thing. I mean, when I developed K, I didn't know that that would be. When I started to write about her and thought suicide, it seemed right that she would have that kind of mother, or it seemed like I could write her as a character with, you know, by appending. I can say that the thing that happened with with my family, and so there there. K comes into focus. 
What a, I'm so sorry you went through that, but what an interesting way of sharing the, the pain that you felt. Um, speaking about Kay, she creates all these lovely little illustrations throughout the book. And her first drawing is of her physics teacher, I remember. I wonder if you ever caught one of your students sketching this portrait of you at some point. Where did that come from? And who did those illustrations? There's no- I did them. Okay. And I did that. The first portrait that I did of, of the physics teacher, I did online with a mouse. It was really fun to do. And so I started to do them all with the mouse, but I couldn't. Some of them were too hard to to do with the mouse and I ended up drawing them. But all the drawings are mine. And I was the I was the one who doodled in class. Okay. You know, as a way of keeping attentive. Yeah. So Kay so got Kay got my artistic, you know, because I was I was actually a well, I was a writer and an artist and tried to figure out for a while I was trying to figure out which uh, road I would go down. The illustrations are lovely. They're really well done. Will you talk for a little bit about the setting, the park and the bluff in the fictional town of Bluebird? Sure. Um, First of all, Lourdes, Michigan doesn't exist. Um, I wanted the the novel to be set in Michigan just because, first of all, it had to be set in the Midwest for the ending and and for... I don't know, to, to fit in with my knowledge base because I'm Midwestern and I've lived, I mean, I, I lived a short while in California, but too short to have a, a good enough feel for it. Um, so it had to be somewhere in the Midwest and it needed a bluff. Well, Michigan got the, got the right. nod because um, I traveled. for My husband and I were looking for a... a second home for a little while we, we he used to have it we used to have a house together in wisconsin and uh sold it and then when the it, when the kids were a little bit older we decided well maybe we could with the money buy a, a home if it's inexpensive in michigan so we took a ride and we went up you know all along the um the east coast of lake michigan and looked at houses and we found there was a house there. We walked and we, you know, we were just, we were just looking at houses and we didn't have a realtor. There was a peach tree in the front and we knew, um, we knew that it was for sale for, I think it was $30,000 and it was oh, on hmm. the lake. So, <gasps> so we walked around back and my God, the back, it, it, it was a bluff. It was, I mean, you could fall from, it, it, there wasn't a fence on it, and you could see there was there was the lawn that extended all the way towards the, you know, towards the lake. Then we, we walked up there and looked down, and there was the beach below. You know, a pretty fairly horizontal drop, and we thought this is. We didn't buy the house on account of, well, there's an image in the book about the eroding of the backyards, and that was something we saw. This yard was maybe, what, maybe 100 feet. But we could see that the grass was growing down the bluff. And you could see that this was an eroding bluff. <laughs> so that was the, uh, so I, I, that was the image of, of the house, of the place. And then I just invented, ah, the park where they meet. 
and the town where they meet. And I, you know, the Lords didn't come until very late in the game. I didn't know that it was going to be at a place called Lords. I was looking around. I, I, I Googled names of towns in Michigan and found these cool ones like Valhalla. You know, I think there's uh-huh. another one called Hell, Michigan. Um, and, it, you know, and then Lords came to me for no good reason that I could explain. I just decided I wanted to call it Lords. And then once I did, other things came into place, like the fountain, <laughs> you know, and why, why someone might ask me, why did, why are you calling it Lords? I don't know. I like the name. So, and then of course I, then I, but after that question sort of ferments for a little bit in my brain, I go back to the novel and see if I can find some places where I can do more, um, you know, sort of description of the background, you know, and part of writing probably, as you know, is, you know, you put something in and then you have to go away, do something else. And then you look at it and make sure that it, it fits. And that also the fact that you've added a whole bunch, many, many new words means you probably have to take out something to, to rebalance it. But uh, a lot of it is a kind of cut and paste and hone process. Well, how long did it take you to write this book? At least 20 years. <gasps> that is interesting. I started in the 90s. And how did you know you were done? Well, I, you know, I, I thought that I was done a lot earlier than 19, um, 2018 or 20, I guess what was 2017. But it took a while for me. But I would I, I probably finished a draft in three years. Yeah, but that story, it didn't have Kay as narrator. It had four different voices that would that chimed in and it didn't take place in uh nineteen sixty eight. It took place in the present. So it took place in nineteen ninety nine and then it took place in the year two thousand and then the year two thousand and one. But after 2001, it was getting harder to have it like usefully take place in the present because it was taking me a long time to write well enough to publish. And the present kept changing. Mm-hmm. You know, phones kept changing. Oh, God, if they had cell phones, they wouldn't have had much of a problem. Um, and then 9-11 changes the whole system of what people think about and talk about. So I was not, you know, like making it, but the year 1999 wasn't that interesting a year for me. I mean, I had to, I had to pause the, um, the present time because I wasn't going to be able to catch up with it. And then I decided to go back to a time that I had strong feelings about, which was 1968. Speaking of 1968, two of the characters take that road trip to Chicago and it was the summer, and they happened to wander into the protest and violence place during the National Democratic Convention. So, were you writing from personal experience there? A little bit of a little bit of personal, a little bit of Google. I mean, I looked. Were you there? there? I was there, um, but I wasn't there on the very day that they were there. I was in Chicago at the time. I, Steve, and I, my first husband, were actually the ones. <laughs> who had gone to see the movie Weekend um, instead of being our our best political selves. 
And but the next day we went and joined the the protest and, and walked around and got a whiff of tear gas, not as much as they did. Um, so I had to do um, I had to imagine myself there. I'm going to do more imagination, more imagining than remembering. Right. But it was fun that they that they went down there and they participated in a world event. Yes. I mean, and that was something that, I mean, that didn't come into the novel until a whole lot later. I mean, I probably, 10 years had passed and, and it didn't end with that. But when it came into focus, that that as an ending, I understood something about the novel that I hadn't understood before. And that was the need for a larger community, that they were, that they were stuck, that they were, um, you know, kind of walled off you know, in their little group of four, and that there was a kind of um, stickiness to that. Stickiness. So how did you choose a two-week period between them signing the suicide pact and following through with it? Was that, did that change, or was that always the case? Well, this, this is funny, but I, I have a writing group in Chicago. And um, when I first took this, when I first wrote the story, it was six weeks, and I took the novel, the first chapter, you know, and, and I think the, the last line of the pact was they had, instead of they had two weeks, it was they had six weeks. And um, my friend Garnet Cohn, <laughs> a, a fine writer in, um, herself, um, said that's too much time. It would be so much more tense if it were less time. So I thought, but I, I didn't want the whole thing to occur in one day. So I gave it two weeks and figured, you know, I, and I could change it at any moment, but two weeks sort of worked out as a way of, of writing it, you know, as a, as a time frame that was workable. It was very tense. Um, okay. Am I right to think that everyone except Vera finds some comfort from the suicide pact? She sees, seems filled with angst and crazed with guilt. Can you talk more about her and how she differs from them? Oh boy. But she's, she's the most fraught because she's the only one who's, she, I mean, she's the one whose guilt is overwhelming for, uh, for, for many reasons. I mean, I, well, I don't, I don't, not wanting to give away plot elements, but we, I mean, her, her Catholicism lends her, to a sensitivity. Of course, that connects her. I mean, they all feel guilty in one way or another, but because she's done something so recently that makes her ashamed of herself, it's, it's that she, that's, uh, I mean, she's the, the, the one who really wants to, it, it's her idea. She's got everyone involved in this. Um, and after everyone is involved in it, um, she's got twofold guilt because they're doing it with her and she's, and she's the one who wants to blot herself out. It's as if, I mean, she's, she's sort of boxed in from the get go. She's almost a, you know, a kind of a, a Greek tragedy character, someone who is not going to find her way out of her situation, but that everything that she does is going to make it more, likely, you know, more impossible to, to get mm -hmm. away from. Whereas the others are not quite so 
you know, sort of like embroiled in their, you know, in, in tragedy. Are these kids, do you think, more or less confused than teenagers today? You work with college students who aren't that different in age from these four. What do you think? Oh, boy. See, I think some kids are less confused. A lot of kids are. But I deal with a lot. I, I have a lot of writer college kids. And a lot of a lot of the writers want to be writers because they have troubling backgrounds. I mean, I think that there's something about a troubling background and uh, this need to write. There, there's. I mean, I don't know if everyone who writes feels this way, but I think I, I see writing as as a way of making oneself whole when you don't feel that way, and you're trying to find boundaries and uh, you know maybe uh, an environment in, in you know which you can understand yourself and understand yourself and maybe and love yourself at the same time and by putting parts of yourself in different characters um you you create you you, you enlarge your world and that enlargement i think is really important you know it's kind of enlarging and also giving more context to it so i guess i, I guess i know people who i i know many people who are as troubled as my four. And also people who don't seem that way. Well, they all looked normal from the outside, except for Vera with her hand. Yeah, you can't see what's inside. So is how is Once in Lords connected to your previous novel, your short story collection? Are there any commonalities? Well, in terms of, you know, in terms of theme, um, I mean, I think, Almost, I, I, this is something that I've even like read about myself. I mean, that I take a kind of normal situation and I intensify it, or I take a character who, um, you know, has some wildness and I make that wildness more ferocious. And I think that's, I don't know, kind of a writing habit of mine, or it's something that I, I do with, you know, almost that I've done with my in my short stories and in my second novel as well. You know, people take into kind of doing something that pushes the limits of their, um, you know, of their, of their daring. So that's, it's similar in that way. Um, it's different in that it was a departure because it was the first one that required imagination, um, like more imagination than personal experience. Um, Suicide wasn't a part of my up. I mean, suicide in in terms of my aunt wasn't a part. was a part of my upbringing, but not young persons. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know anyone, nor were my friends, uh, nor was I suicidal then. Um, so I felt like I was like one of the reasons it took me so long to write was everything had to be imagined, and like burnishing my imagination is a slow process hmm. so Sharon Solowitz you've traveled the world you've you've sought and hopefully found enlightenment in India you've taught English all around the Midwest you've published you've received prizes and now you've written a really haunting novel I read it in a day 
because I couldn't put it down and I was still thinking about it two weeks later. So I wish you a lot of success. I've taken up a lot of your time, but could you just answer the traditional notebooks question before we say goodbye? What's next for you? Boy, I've been working. um, I just came back from Mexico and I was working there on this, a new novel and I have a draft, but until, until this summer, I didn't like the draft, but now I'm sort of, I became thrilled with it sometime in the middle of my Mexico vacation as I was working it. It's about, well, there's two boys. Um, They're brothers. One goes to Columbia College in Chicago, and the other one goes to Columbia University in New York. And that was what I started with. I, I loved, I just thought it was funny, the idea of these two Columbias and who these boys are. Their mother um, is a school teacher in Chicago and her husband has just left her. And at the beginning of the book, her son who goes to Columbia in New York, um, he's also gone to Israel after he's, he's dropped out of Columbia, gone to Israel, and he's working on the same kibbutz that the mother was on when she met her husband, who's a faithless husband. And at the beginning of the book, she, she, he has stopped emailing her. And she doesn't know where he is. And the book is really is going to be a quest novel because she and her difficult older sister, younger sister are going to uh, be traveling to Israel to try to find uh, her, the son, Jacob. Hmm. It sounds like a great project. I love quest novels that take me around the world. So good luck. And thank you again for being on the New Books podcast. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure.